Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Andrew, before we start, I know you and Abby and little two-year-old May are coming over for dinner. Um, do you guys have any food restrictions? Food restrictions. Uh, when we are going to other people's houses, we have no food restrictions. We are happy to eat whatever is served. So I have the, the same sort of policy uh, as, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we are at home, we have uh, different rules. For the most part, we really do not eat beef at all. I try not to eat any pork. We eat a lot of chicken and turkey and a little bit of fish. But, you know, increasingly, uh, we're trying to make our diets even more vegetarian. And, I, yeah, I guess that's for sort of a, a myriad of personal reasons. You know, we all have unique relationships to the things we eat, right? You open a person's fridge, it, it tells you a story or at least gives you a snapshot about them. And, you know, I tell my boys, like, we're going to make choices about what we eat, what works with our bodies and, and our values and our concerns. But, you know, when when we're at someone else's house, we're going to eat what's served because that's really important. And, you know, fortunately, I'm not allergic to anything, so that makes it easier. Just just cats, and I don't eat those. It's so interesting, right, because it's up to each of us to define that. You know, I love cooking. I, li- I really like cooking for people. I like making meals. I'm not the best chef, but I, I just I enjoy the process. Some of, you know, like my great friends in my that I made in my 20s, I remember meeting them because they would roll into camp in Yosemite, and I would see, see them, and they were like complete disasters because they were exhausted, and I would just be like, these people need to eat food. And I, you know, met some of my great friends because I actually like made them refried beans and quesadilla, you know, like the classic dirtbag meal. Andrew, today you have a story 
about a meal a friend served you. A truly epic one. It's it's true. It was a burger for the ages. I was on a backcountry ski trip. There was a group of eight of us, and we were, at, I don't know, maybe 10 miles up into the mountains, staying in a yurt. Nobody around for as far as the eye could see. We were towed in on snowmobiles with sleds carrying all of our gear. Uh, but after that, we were alone for five days out in the wilderness. Was the skiing good? Yeah, yeah. It it was a great trip. It had a little bit of everything. We had some great powder. We bagged some peaks. And we had one day that was just full of shenanigans where we built jumps and it just brought out the kid in all of us. There was a sleeping yurt and a kitchen yurt. And so each day we'd, we'd wake up and get ready for the day and, and head out to ski the surrounding peaks. And then each night we'd, we'd come back and cook a huge family dinner. We took turns cooking and each person on the trip had a meal they were responsible for. And on maybe the fourth night, when our faces were looking a little windswept and our legs were starting to get pretty tired... A guy on the trip who I didn't know terribly well at the time, named Kel, was in charge of dinner. And Kel seemed pretty excited to cook for us. He said he was going to serve us burgers, but not just any burgers, elk burgers. And the elk meat was from an animal that he had harvested himself. Kel said that if we were going to enjoy this meal he had prepared... He wanted to share the story of how this elk came onto our plates. Today, we present a story about a meal. Simple at first glance, right? A burger. But when you dig in, there's a tale about curiosity, determination, a lot of sweat, and even an intellectual journey that spanned YouTube all the way to the Rocky Mountains. I'm Andrew Burton. I'm Fitzgerald Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So, there we were in the kitchen yurt. The sun was setting through a neon pink sky outside with the mountains silhouetted. While Cal cooked, someone melted snow in a big pot over the stove to create water for the next day. Another person cracked a few beers for the team. Someone else acted as Kel's sous chef. The rest of us played cards around a rickety aluminum table with one crooked leg. Boot liners and socks hung from the walls. The table quickly became festooned with drinks, sunscreen, cards, and ski goggles. Then Cal served us the biggest most mouth-watering, savory burgers I've ever had. He served them on big brioche rolls with thick cuts of cheddar cheese, lettuce, sautéed onions, mayo, and ketchup. And before I let Cal tell you his story, there's just one bit of background info that I think would be good to know. Cal doesn't come from a family of hunters. He grew up in Boulder, Colorado, when he was a kid, his mom was a professor at the university, and his dad was a family doctor. He grew up skiing, hiking, and camping. 
He was surrounded by climbers, backcountry skiers, cyclists, runners, and anglers, but not hunters. And yet, he was always intrigued by hunting. Maybe, Kel posits, it's his contrarian nature and attraction to minority positions. Maybe it's because people in Boulder often seemed clueless or judgmental of hunting. Regardless, ever since Kel was young, he says he always wanted to learn more about hunting. Anyway, this story starts about five years ago. At the time, Kel was living in Miami while his girlfriend, and now wife, Ellie, attended med school. I'll let Kel take it from here. So I was working at this guest ranch in Montana as kind of an all-around person. I would take people on hikes, sometimes take people fishing, served meals in the dining hall, and uh, we would have guests come and, and stay there for a week at a time. And it was early September, a little bit early for elk to typically be bugling much, but uh, I was with some friends and we'd been having beers after work and whatnot, and we heard this elk bugle up over the ridge that was just above us. And we thought, you know, oh, let's go see if we can just look at it or see if we can get somehow close to it or whatnot. And, you know, we set off up this ridge and we get to right about at the top of the ridge and the wind was just right to where the elk's scent was blowing towards us and not the other way around. And uh, we peeked up over the ridge and we could see these elk, you know, 30, 35 yards below us. And we'd been pretty loud. We'd been drinking a little bit and definitely were not hunting per se. Um, And so the elk immediately heard us and booked it out of there. But they were just... These, these magnificent creatures, you know, and getting that close to ones that were truly wild. They weren't, it wasn't like in a, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park where they're used to cars right next to them. These were completely wild elk. And when we got into that much proximity to them, I kind of realized, you know, how much of a challenge that is in, in normal life or on public land. And I was really intent on making that actually happen and figuring out if I could eventually harvest one with a bow. And why bow hunting instead of hunting with a rifle? Kel will tell you it's because a bow forces you to become a part of the natural world. Sure, hunting with a rifle can give you a modicum of that experience, but the best rifle hunters might be able to hit an elk from a thousand yards away. For bow hunting, Kel wouldn't be comfortable taking a shot more than 50 yards away. The sport requires you to understand how an animal thinks and moves in all kinds of terrain. Kel began to do his homework, and one of the first things he learned about was the rut. The rut is this period where the elk are all mating or preparing to mate. It's a time that all bow hunters in western states are allowed to hunt elk because the elk are not thinking quite as rationally as they otherwise might be. And it makes it a bit easier. And so the biggest bulls, we call them herd bulls, they want the most female elk. And so all these male elk that were previously homies in July, they're duking it out and just fighting like like crazy cats and dogs. Just, you know, they're hitting antlers. They're huffing and puffing at each other. They're bugling their brains out at these elk because they're competing for mates. And so you'll see these dynamics that happen that are just crazy where like a you know a a small bull thinks that he can take on a medium-sized bull and he does and he wins and he gets all the all of the female elk from that medium-sized bull 
or you know a medium-sized bull tries to take on this big dominant bull and just gets his ass handed to him and walks away dejected and goes to the next basin to try there that's the elk are thinking about that almost as much as they're thinking about survival you know that's like the, these two evolutionary needs are competing and at all other times of an elk's uh, year survival is very much foremost Without a mentor, Kel tried to prep the best he could, watching videos online and diving into chat forums. He secured a hunting permit for the area in Colorado that he wanted to hunt. And in September 2018, he left Miami for two weeks in Colorado. The, the area that I was hunting in this first year in Colorado, it's not an area that's known for being incredibly rugged, at least in terms of elevation change. You know, it's kind of small mountains and rolling hills and whatnot. But the thing with hunting that is just such a paradigm shift to other sports is that none of it is on trail. And so <laughs> I was taking the topography and thinking, you know, this won't be that bad to compared to other backcountry ski trips. And I completely underestimated the utter just insanity of bushwhacking for two weeks straight and I you know on day 10 I have blisters the size of Texas on my heels my toes everything I'm thinking in my head well I just have to keep pushing keep grinding keep trying 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 that's all the YouTube stuff that I'd heard and finally you know I get to the end of the trip and it's like I didn't even get anywhere close to a real shot opportunity and I completely beat up. I am in an area that no one really appreciates being beat up by unless they've been hunting in and gone through all the oak brush that pokes you and prods you and whatnot. You're getting up at three in the morning often and then you're coming back midday, take a midday nap. Then you go out in the evening and then you walk back alone in the dark um, after you walked alone in the dark to your hunting spot and then you sleep by yourself and then you think, oh, if I really want to get an elk, I got to wake up the next morning at 3 a.m., turn my headlamp on, make my crappy like oatmeal breakfast, get back out there and keep trying and go again and again and again and doing that for days on end and not even, you know, having any kind of payoff, not having a good ski turn or not making a good climbing move. It was, uh, how do I phrase it? I mean, it sucked. Like, <laughs> it, you, you learn shit, but like, it sucked. So, so I go back to Miami and my, my now wife, she's very gracious and I think she had seen how into it I was and how many videos I'd watched and whatnot. And either she didn't say much or I think she thought, well, he better get one next year. I'll give him one more shot. I would say it took like a month, um, maybe two months to really think more rationally about like, what can I improve on? What can I learn more of? What have I done wrong here and how can I get to be more successful at this? And until you go through that process of really figuring out what you can change, it's hard to think like, I'm just going to go back and grind harder. You know, you have to be more rational about it. Between his first and second year, Kel shifted strategies in two major ways. First, he invited a buddy, Mike, so that he wasn't hunting alone and had some assistance. Second, he changed his strategy on where to hunt. 
The first year, he had looked at all the plots of land in Colorado where he could hunt and simply chose the land unit with the highest success rate. What he didn't understand at the time was that that unit of land he had chosen consisted of a lot of private land, limiting the amount of ground he was legally allowed to hunt on. For the second year, he chose a unit of land that had a high percentage rate of successful hunts and a high percentage rate of public land. We go to our new area. It's a lot more public land, a little bit lower success rate, but we're at least seeing a good amount of elk sign. You can see their fresh poop, their tracks. There's, there's a lot more activity in this area, but we at the same time hadn't thought about certain things like how easy it is to move around. And the same stuff that I ran into the year prior, the oak brush, which is just this nasty, scraggly, spiny, like pokey stuff that there's no trails through. That's where the elk all hang out. And, uh, you know, we're just traipsing through all of this oak brush that's it's so hard to move through this. And I think Mike came out for 10 days of that trip, and I hunted that season for almost 20. And we had not even seen an elk until the last morning. And even then, I think I saw a flicker of the tail of the elk moving away through the oak brush. So, you know, year two, away with our tails between our legs, dejected again. Oh, and I lost my truck keys that year, and I had to walk like 10 miles down a dirt road, and Mike was pissed, and oh, God, that was a year. I get back to Miami. Actually, I get back to my parents' house in Boulder. It's like, yep, I didn't get one. It wasn't the year. I think they were all thinking, well, that's probably the end of Kel's elk hunting career. Um, and fly back to Miami and tell Ellie the same thing. And it's just a bad feeling of not just not getting one, but not really even seeing one that year was... Uh, I was thinking the whole time, like, I don't think Mike's going to want to come back out with me. <laughs> but... I think the bug changes more to like a pride bug at that point. You know, the, the whole mystical experience on the ridge in Montana of coming within 35 yards of elk it was very distant at that point. And I was more wanting to redeem this goal that I'd set for myself, not fully, you know, thinking of the payoff or the feeling of it, but I was fairly stubborn at that point and I'm surprised that Mike had he'd gotten the bug enough at that point also to his stubbornness uh, was right there with me so we went back the year following and while Kel is a bit hard on himself about it all the statistics on getting an elk in Colorado whether on private or public land with a bow is incredibly low only approximately 10% of bow hunters get an elk on any given year Going into year three, Kel and Mike changed their strategy again. They felt that in their second year, they were seeing too many hunters, in part because the land units they were hunting on had unlimited numbers of permits issued, meaning that by elk hunting standards, the area was way too crowded with people. For their third year, they tried to choose a spot they felt would be mostly empty of other hunters. They also had a better understanding of how elk move through the mountains depending on terrain and time of day, where they prefer to graze or sleep, and what their daily schedule looks like. Elk, especially in more alpine areas in Colorado, their behavior is fairly predictable. 
in a lot of ways. They frequently are up late at night feeding or, or mating or chasing mates. And then when it gets to around mid-morning and everything is heating up, they go to their bedding area, which is almost always super steep north-facing timber, as dense of an area that's shaded and north-facing as you can get. And so a lot of the strategy with that is intercepting the elk between uh, where they are at night and where they're going to their bedding area. And so that frequently requires getting up, you know, very early, especially it depends on how far away your campsite is and whatnot, but you're thinking often as well about not camping you know, right on top of them so that you don't spook them. So a lot of times you have to get up at three in the morning and start walking into where you think you can intercept the elk between where they have been out feeding at night and where they're going to bed. Along with that comes the component of the wind. And so the wind is the single most important natural feature for anyone trying to be successful hunting and especially for bow hunters because of the proximity to the animals that you get within and so you're planning out your whole strategy based on topography time of day elk behavior and wind when those elements of an approach finally came together and you could figure out what you were doing why and then see it work it was it was amazing it was just the cool it felt like a key to unlock this whole arena of the outdoors that I'd never experienced before. You know, I love downhill skiing. I love backcountry skiing. And backcountry skiing especially, you know, it allows uh, me to get into areas away from other people, etc. But frequently, you know, I'm, I'm with friends and, you know, you're on a skin track and you're chatting or you're eating or you're, you got a wrapper and it's out and making noise and you're frequently on like a known approach route or a known trail. What I've realized hunting is that even in a pursuit like backcountry skiing, you know, where you can get to where you feel like you're far out, you're part of something bigger than you, which you are, it's awesome. There's, there's a bit farther you can still push in the sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself or being part of the ecosystem at large, and that's participating in the ecosystem. When you're dressed in full camo and you're walking into the wind and you're trying to be quiet, you're not talking, you're off trail, you just see things that you would never see otherwise. This Two seasons ago, like I saw two mountain lions in a two-week period. One of them was all of maybe seven or eight feet away from me. I saw like a weasel attack a bird in front of me and carry it up a tree. I've never seen that shit when I'm like hiking or making noise. And hunting is the only pursuit in the outdoors where I've actually felt that. It's like leveling up that connection to the natural world. With all of this growing wisdom, Kel dove into year three. So the third year, from the very start, we're seeing elk and we're seeing elk within 200 yards. And it's just, it's miles above what I'd been doing the first year and then Mike and I had done the second year. And it got finally to the point where I actually had a shot opportunity. And I had just finished, I think it was like an 11 mile day, 100% off trail on in these like deadfall strewn ravines that they're like 4,000 feet up and down this slope. And there's elk all over in that stuff. And it's just the most frustrating thing because it's the least obvious approach route or climbing route or anything anyone would want to do to climb the mountain. You'd never go there, but the elk go there. And so I'd just finished 11 miles through all this junk. I'm coming back down. It's almost dark. 
and I'm trying to get down to my campsite. And I dropped down onto this area that was like all of 250 yards away from a dirt road. And it broke like all of the rules of elk hunting. Like the elk should not be there. And sure enough, they're right there. <laughs> and there's like, there's like 40 of them. There's like a big group of elk right there. They smell like total shit. Like Chanel number five for elk is about the most potent urine, mud filled, mildewy nonsense you've ever like put your nose on. It's really not a pleasant smell but it's potent so you know you're close when you're close and so the, those elk i could smell i smelled them before i came around the corner because 40 of them together in september they reek and i got up into these bushes and i took out my uh, cow call and so this call imitates a uh, female elk That's how they communicate amongst each other. And uh, so I sat in this little chunk of bushes, maybe 45 yards away from the group of elk. And I didn't quite have a good shot through the branches and the trees on the elk. So I was trying to make the muse to call one of the male or the female elk in towards me. I had a tag where I could legally take either a female or a male elk. And I mew a few times. And this six by six bull, a pretty good bull, turns and starts coming towards me. And I, you know, I'm like shaking and stuff. I have, I've gone through all this work, all this energy, blah, 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 just for this a moment like this. And I take an arrow out of my quiver and I kind of put it on the rest and I'm shaking, shaking, shaking. And this bull is getting closer and closer casually. He's not too concerned. He's just wanting to check me out, see if he could you know if I could be a potential mate and he finally gets to this point where he stops and feeds a little bit and I don't quite have a shot and then right along the dirt road on the side of it there's like another trail and this ATV starts coming up it which is why the elk usually aren't there and sure enough all the elk they turn and they they see the ATV and they they, they run 20 yards away and at that point the elk stopped about 50 yards and I let the arrow fly. And I hadn't seen a, a branch that was poking out. It, the branch was like halfway between me and the elk, so my eyes weren't focused on it. They were focused on my sight and on the elk. And the arrow hit the branch and it went like 20 yards over his back and, you know, totally missed. Um, and then they all ran off. More after the break. Stay with us. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid. Because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat because you will absolutely love this bedrock and all the dope places you go. That year definitely changed my take on the whole thing of not just like, I want to grind this out and actually do it. It was like, oh, this is what it's about. This is so cool. These experiences, even if I don't get the animal, it's just this amazing sport. So it was a total shift in my perspective that year, even, if, even though I was not successful. Finally, year four. 
So at this point, I'd moved back to Colorado. I didn't have to fly out to do a trip. And I had had the whole summer to scout and try to assess and see what the elk are doing and where. And that just builds the stoke every single time you do it because you go and you see, oh, there's this bull, there's this giant pod of elk here, there's this going on, etc. And then in a backyard or anywhere in town, you're practicing your shots. And so you're shooting arrows after arrow after arrow after arrow, trying to make sure that your motion, that your muscle memory is putting those arrows exactly where you intend them and at varying distances, at varying slope angles, varying conditions. I'll do 10 push-ups, 20 push-ups. Well, if I can do 20, I usually can do 20 push-ups. And then you'll take a shot right after that. And so you're trying to imitate, you know, the heart thump of when an elk actually is coming up to you. Your shooting ability in that context is much different than it is being very calm at a range or in your backyard. And so the whole summer is filled, you know, with scouting and with shooting your bow. And you're trying to get to the point where you can ethically deliver a lethal shot on an elk within a given range and in a certain scenario. And so an an ethical shot on an elk with a bow is vitals only. It's the heart and lungs. So that's why we practice for so long in the summer. The season is coming up, coming up, coming up, and there's this, it's like a a stew that's cooking, building towards opening day when it can finally be released. For the fourth year, Kel and Mike changed their strategy in two meaningful ways. They brought two more friends with them, Pat and Luke, in case they got an animal, and they chose to go back to the same unit of land, but to focus on a section that was deeper in the backcountry. With these new tactics, they headed up into their chosen zone, 11 miles deep into the Rockies. Despite it being September, they walked smack into a snowstorm and woke up to three inches of snow on their first morning in the basin. Still, they decided to keep going. So this basin is this, it's a big basin. It's probably two, two and a half miles wide at its widest and tree line kind of goes all the way around it at about 12,000 feet and then it goes high up to peaks uh, that surround the area and our strategy was the on day two we were going to go to the opposite side of the basin from where we thought the elk would be so we were looking across it at this north facing slope that was kind of open right above tree line and we're on the opposite side from where these elk are and we look across and there's like a herd of like 150 elk they're everywhere absolutely everywhere and there's no other hunters in this whole basin it's only us and 150 of them you know it's like it's obvious it's really fast you'll see them quickly even though we're looking at them from a mile and a half away and the odd thing that I noticed right when we first looked across was that there was no uh, bulls in the middle group. There were all the bulls, you can kind of tell by their bodies, they were all like 100, 150 yards away from the main pack of cows in the middle, which was kind of a weird setup at this time of year. But then in the middle of the pack of cows is the only bull that I can see the antlers on. And this guy is a giant, like an absolute tank. And you can tell how big he is from the other side of the basin, a mile and a half away, when you couldn't even see the antlers on the other bulls. His are readily apparent and, like, shining. So 
you know, we're, we see this bull, obviously, but Mike and I are thinking if we can get close to any one of these elk, 150 of them, you know, if we could just get close to a cow, we would be over the moon. So we didn't have, the light was going away. It was about to get dark. We didn't have time to make a play on them there, but we were waiting until the next morning to get up and I barely slept that night. And so it's like three in the morning. We wake up, have our packs packed have the water filter and lunch and whatnot to stay out away from camp if need be and we start going up and it's still dark um, but we get up to where we're a lot closer but we can still see where these elk were last time and it gets to be light enough to where we can look through the binoculars again and sure enough not as many elk as we saw the night before but there's a good number of them maybe 60 70 and they're kind of moving along the slope across uh, from where we had seen them and eventually once the morning gets late enough they'll be going down to their bedding area i told mike uh, i'll call for you and so since each of us had a tag uh, each of us could take an elk we would flip-flop of who called and who was a shooter And so the setup that you usually try to do is to have the shooter a little bit upwind of the caller uh, so that when the elk come in, they're focused on the person calling, not on the person who would be taking the shot. And ideally, they would come before they could smell either of us and offer a shot opportunity to the person with the bow. So I set up as the caller behind Mike, and we're downhill from where this pod of elk is. And so the wind is blowing their scent towards us. It seems really good. There's a few small bulls that I can see and maybe 10 or 12 cows. And I set up and I have my cow call. It's like my favorite cow call. And I've called elk in with it before. I feel confident, etc. And I, Mike is maybe 30, 40 yards in front of me and uphill. And he's, you know, ready with certain shooting lanes. And I let out a few calls. <coughs> And immediately the elk run the opposite direction. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what? Why? <laughs> this is this makes no sense. This always works. And they they just start taking off the total opposite direction. And I was like, well, dang, I need to work on my calling, I guess. And Mike turned around and he kind of put his hands up like, no, no, no. So they, they start taking off and we're like, well, shoot, we got to figure out what we're going to do. I don't know. They didn't like that. And we get just barely over this little hill above us to where we can kind of see what we couldn't see before and the herd bull is right there and he had pushed those satellite bulls uphill away from us and luckily it wasn't my calling that did it but the bull was he was close and uh i'm saying right there he was maybe 80 or 90 yards away but there wasn't a shot opportunity and so at that point mike and i you know, we come to a decision-making juncture, and I've always been a bit more of a, you know, a conservative decision-maker and trying to not scare the elk if we don't need to and don't push it too much and whatnot, and the elk are going to their beds, and so when they're on their beds, it's a place, you know, where if you spook them on their beds, they're going to be so far away, you'll never see them again, and that's like the last thing you want to do, and so I'm saying all this to Mike, man, I think we should I think we should dip back out. I think I think we got to really slow play this. They're on their beds. We don't want to scare them out. Let's go back to camp, get some lunch, and come back in the evening. That's definitely the best move. 
Mike <laughs> comes back at me like immediately and goes, I didn't hike all the way back up here again just to dick around and not challenge Bugle that son of a bitch. I'm going to fucking challenge Bugle him. And I was like, whoa, dude. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> if you don't know what a challenge Bugle is, and I sure didn't, it's one of the most aggressive elk hunting tactics you can exercise in the field. Similar to a cow call, it involves imitating an elk's natural call, but instead of a docile, location-oriented call, it's the equivalent of demanding a fight with a bull elk and threatening that you're going to steal the bull's cows. In short, it is a bold decision to make. And we had heard the herd bull bugle a few times, so we knew they were still there. And we get closer and closer, and we hear another bugle, so we can really triangulate where those elk are without seeing them. And we finally get to this point where we can kind of almost see their tails and whatnot through the, through the trees or legs. And because I had called the last time, uh, Mike was like, okay, I'm going to call this time. And he, <laughs> he does it out of this, he has like a cutoff wiffle ball bat that he uses as a bugle tube. And so I'm thinking in my head this whole time, all right, Mike's going to call out of his freaking cut off wiffle ball bat i'm gonna be here and not have a shot opportunity we're gonna scare all these elk out of here and we'll go back and have lunch whatever that's the day and mike waits just like a few minutes maybe five minutes or something and we hear the bull bugle one more time and so at that point we know you know they're right there you can still see one or two of their legs and mike blows a location bugle and so the location bugle is just eliciting a response from the bull. It's not challenging them yet. It's just saying, hey, I'm here. Who else is here? And the bull responds immediately. And right in the middle of the bull's response, Mike just rips the nastiest, most blood-curdling bugle. Right over the top of him and interrupts him, cuts the bull off, hook, line, and sinker. And that bull was pissed absolutely furious he I, I didn't even know exactly where he was from in the trees down below me i immediately see antlers get up he he stands up from his cows and turns around and just starts tromping up the hill directly towards us and i was like holy shit it worked <laughs> and so <laughs> the bull is just like hooked and he he comes up farther and he he rips another bugle right back at mike mike cuts him off again and uh, this bull is coming closer and closer to me, and the wind is right. I have my bow. I have my broadheads. I've practiced my shots. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the biggest bull in this whole area. I've never even shot an elk before. Why am I in this situation? This is ridiculous. And the bull gets closer and closer till he's about 30 yards away from me, well within my ethical range to take a shot. But I don't have a shot with the branches and stuff that are in front of his vitals. And there's a tree that's probably like five inches around and 20 feet tall. And this bull, in one hit of his antlers, just completely destroys this thing. It just totally falls over. And at that point, Mike is like, I got to up my game, you know, like I, I'm only bugling on this guy. I got to start raking trees. And so what elk do when they're challenging another elk to take 
they're cows. They they rake trees. It's this show of dominance, this total, you know, animalistic, like, I am bigger and badder than you are. And so Mike grabs a stick with his hand that's not on the wiffle ball tube, and he's just scraping the living hell out of this tree. Branches are flying everywhere. The elk can't see him. He's still behind enough cover to where he can't be seen doing this, but you can hear all of it like crazy. He's just blowing the gnarliest bugles through this wiffle ball bat. And I'm sitting, you know, behind a tree that's even closer to the elk, quiet as a church mouse, because the the thing is right there. It's just, it's so, so close. And once Mike started raking that tree, the elk tromped up closer and faster. And not only is he coming closer and closer and closer, but he's coming, he's coming broadside closer and closer and closer, which is the perfect shot opportunity you can get. And all of this is combining in my head, you know, of this giant, like a way bigger elk than any, like people in their whole lifetime of hunting with a bow on public land, especially in a zero point unit, would be over the moon to have this thing coming even within 50 yards of them. But my nerves are th- absolutely through the roof. And so I, I, am, I am shaking more than you can ever imagine like to the point where I could barely knock an arrow and my arms are like moving uncontrollably it's like the same adrenaline as if you if you're dropping a a cliff skiing you know it's like the biggest cliff you've ever dropped like right when you come off of the uh, precipice like right when you're fully airborne it's that feeling but then you have no control and gravity has no control of when that stops (laughs) the elk comes closer and closer I have like a window between these trees at 17 yards window at 16 yards and a window of 15 yards and this elk you know you can see like steam coming out of his nostrils he's absolutely livid that mike is trying to take his cows and he slows down just slowly like a perfect amount of slow comes past the 17 window i don't take the shot my sight's going left right up down left right up down and it comes to the 16 window i'm still shaking i'm like i can't i gotta get this under control otherwise i'm not gonna take a good shot and he finally gets the 15 window elk pauses at the 15 yard window 15 yards away from me no idea i'm there looks up looking up at mike and i finally got my jitters just barely under control and i and i let the arrow go and the arrow goes and it goes straight it goes like i think right where i was aiming but it was so hard to tell because the elk didn't even the elk heard my string go off and 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 it, it clearly responded to the noise like what was that but then he trotted off like maybe 15 20 more yards and he looks up at mike and he's like Mike had shut up at that point, but the elk is kind of like, what, what, what's going on? This is weird. And he, he kind of button hooks and, and goes downhill. And like, I'm like, did I miss? Like, what, what, what happened? This is insane. One of the most important things you can do uh, when you're hunting elk with a bow after you've taken a shot is to really, really wait and to not pressure the animal to do anything other than what it would do normally. You don't want them to know that there's humans in the area at all. And so once he just started going downhill more, we blew some more cow calls to make it seem like a more natural scenario. And we waited like 45 minutes or so before we even went and looked for if there was blood where I had taken the shot. There's a video that Mike recorded of Kel while they sat in the brush and waited the painstakingly long 45 minutes. I hope it was a good shot. (laughs) 
It's hard to understand, but Kel sort of breathlessly says, I hope it was a good shot. We're going to look in a second, but I'm shaking. My first elk, if it works. We wait 45 minutes. I'm sitting there just looking up at Mike. We're not wanting to move at all in case the elk is close. And I'm like, I I don't even know how to describe the emotions that go through your, your self when, when you're in this point where everything, you know, has led up to this, all this work, all this time, all this effort, your loved ones giving you the space and the time and whatnot to be able to do this. You're like, it all comes down to this. And 45 minutes goes up and we go and we look for blood and there's nothing like there's like no blood. And I'm like, dude, I think I missed. And so (laughs) Mike and I start doing like a little grid search around the general area and then finally it's like, oh, there's there's an arrow. There's my arrow. And we go and we pick up the arrow. And I look at the fletchings on the arrow, the farthest point back on the arrow, and they're just completely covered in bubbly blood, which is a really good sign. It's vitals blood, lung blood. And the fact that they're on the fletching also means that the arrow had gone completely through the entire elk. It had passed through it in its entirety. So at that point, you know, uh, this immense pressure of like, oh my, did I like wound it or did I, you know, miss or uh, the wounding would have been the worst option, but missing would have also sucked. And it's all, it's all relieved in a certain way at that point of just like, you know, okay, I know that this shot was good and it was a pass through, but we're like, where's this blood trail? Because if you're going to find an elk in, you know, thick trees, you have to find a blood trail to be able to guide yourself to where the animal actually is so we do a little bit more of a grid search and finally we find the first thing of blood and it's a ton of blood and we follow this for say 200 yards but then the trail starts kind of drying up a little bit it was really weird it didn't make any sense of why that would happen or typically with a with a good shot the elk won't even really realize it's been hit it's almost like a extremely sharp exacto knife making like a paper cut loss of blood to the brain and the, the animal expires and but at this point you know the blood's drying up i'm thinking in my head again all over like did i injure this beautiful creature and never gonna get it I'm just, it's just gonna die by itself like the, I, your, your head is full of all these things of just like Finally, Mike was like, hey, let's go back. Let's get lunch at the campsite. Uh, let's meet back up with Luke and Pat and <laughs> let's have them come out and uh, help us. More eyes is better than fewer. Uh, and I'm just an emotional mess at lunch. I'm like in my head, just like hands on my face, you know, not knowing what's going on. I really, really, really wanted to get on this elk uh, that I chose to take the life of. And so Luke and Pat come back out with us and these guys are they're deer hunters like through and through they uh they've tracked things a lot luke at one point suggested that we look more so for uh recent hoof prints and he's down on the ground you know looking at how far in the toes went how recently wet the dirt is all this stuff and he follows one of these trails maybe 50 60 yards or so like far away from where we had been looking for blood and he goes i'm back on blood we get up like 10 more yards and a clot had fallen out we go another maybe 100 yards and the elk is piled up and he had expired a long time ago he covered that ground very quickly and it just it was just this overwhelming feeling of gratitude like conclusion being part of a process 
that's so beyond you and has they got enough variables have to align for this to happen that you you can never ever ever think that it's like your own doing it's such a team effort that like i'd give myself maybe 10 percent of the credit on this specific elk of making it happen because a 15 yard shot is like a absolute layup for any bow hunter and that's all i had to do and it was kind of put in front of me and you know you get back uh onto this animal this this creature and you're just like it's just this overwhelming feeling of of extreme gratitude that's kind of the only noun i can think of that describes it barely If you've ever climbed a mountain, you know that the summit isn't the finish line. It's only the halfway point. You still have to get back down safely. For Kel, after four years of trying, he may have finally gotten his elk, but he and the team now had to butcher the animal and haul it out of the backcountry on their backs, all before the meat began to spoil. They were a mile and a half of off-trail hiking from their campsite and another 11 miles of trail hiking from their car. Kel, Mike, Pat, and Luke immediately recognize the overwhelming amount of work in front of them. Breaking down the animal alone took them nine full hours. In the midst of butchering the animal, they found a fully expanded 300 Winchester Magnum bullet in the elk's neck. To their shock, this bull had not only survived, but had been thriving after a hunter lodged a bullet in its neck years before. They were quick to realize that this particular elk was magnitudes larger than they had expected. Going into the hunt, they had estimated that if they were successful in getting an elk, they would probably need to pack out about 200 pounds of meat, or 50 pounds per person. In reality, by the time they were finished butchering the animal, Kel estimates they had approximately 400 pounds total, requiring each hunter to carry 100 pounds of elk plus all of their camping gear. And raw meat, it is not easy to pack. It is bulky, wet, and cumbersome to carry. The guys used game bags and paracord to load the meat into packs, staggering under the weight. It took them two trips each, or about 4.5 miles of hiking back and forth, to get the 400 pounds of elk from where the animal had expired back to their camp. Kel describes the hiking at night, by headlamp, off trail, crossing over downed trees, slick leaves, and burdened by the heavy load as some of the most grueling trekking he has ever done. By the time they arrived back at camp with the final load, it was 2.30 in the morning. They crawled into their sleeping bags, completely covered in elk blood, knowing that they were still a full 11 miles from the car. The next morning, they decided to carry out everything in a single push. While Kel had a proper hunting backpack, which was designed to carry heavy loads, the others only had typical backpacking bags that weren't as strong. Using every last inch of paracord, they strapped pound after pound of meat to their backpacks, only to watch in horror as the aluminum frames that supported the backpacks began to buckle under the weight rendering their bags broken and nearly useless. In an ingenious move, Mike suggested they cut boughs from pine trees and create makeshift gurneys that they could drag behind them, 
and then strapped the game bags to the sleds. The four collected branches and created crude backcountry stretchers, but the contraptions only made it about two miles down the trail after an excruciating amount of work before things started to fall apart. Finally, Kel called it. He pulled out his satellite device in an effort to call in outside help. Their only hope was to reach out to Mike's dad, who was down in town at the bottom of the trail. They hoped he might be able to get help in some way or another. Ninety minutes later, Kel got a message back. The cavalry was on the way. While the guys had rested and pondered their next move, Mike's dad had found an outfitter who happened to be the town's police chief, and he agreed to come up the next morning with a team of horses. So he sends me an inreach message, and he says, he's like, it's like details, you know, communicating, where are you, how, how much meat, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, what, what's the elk look like? And I didn't quite know what he meant, and I was like, well, it's a lot of meat, it's like, I don't know what that means. He's like, well, like, what's the rack look like? And he described the exact rack in the inreach message. He's like, does the right third curve in a little bit more than the left third, and is the seven point a small seven point? And I was like, what the heck, man? Like, what? And he, I, I didn't get an explanation. I didn't ask on the inReach how he knew that. But shows up at our campsite the next morning, and he looks at the rack in the campsite, and he goes, yeah, that's that's him. And I was like, what? Hey, what do you mean? And he told us, he's like, I've had clients close to the same elk. I was I was like 100 yards away from it like a week and a half ago. I've been, I've been following him for, for a while. <laughs> and he thinks that it was the same elk he'd been following, I think he said, for two years prior. Kel describes their nine-mile hike out as one of the easiest hikes he has ever had the pleasure to walk. Upon getting back to town, though, the outfitter and the meat were nowhere to be seen. Unbeknownst to Kel, the outfitter had invited half the town over to his house, where he was displaying the animal for the locals to see. And so we go and we show up at his house, and there's like half the town in his front yard. And the elk rack is in the middle of everyone. And people have, you know, they got their hands on it. They got, it's these guys with like curled up cowboy hats and like big white mustaches. Like, oh gee, just like completely in awe of this elk. And there's this one guy, the guy with the mustache, he was like, yeah, back in the... 1983, you know, I saw one, I think it was bigger than this one come out, and I didn't have a shot on him, but, and those were the types of stories that were going around, and it was just like, what? And it was just this wild, like, undeserving <laughs> experience, both having the elk and then the, like, accolades and all this stuff that go with it for an incredibly green person like myself. It just was totally crazy out of left field. For all the genuine shenanigans of Kel's first elk, though, for him, the story is about much, much more. A big piece of me getting into hunting, I think, also was reading a bit more about the policy surrounding it and the role that it plays in sustaining North America's wildlife populations at large. I hadn't heard of certain things like the Pittman-Robertson Act that allocates an excise tax on any hunting or fishing equipment sold to the tune of almost 10% that goes directly to state conservation boards. And it's resulted in literal billions and billions of dollars allocated completely to conservation efforts. And a lot of the biologists that work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife 
are just excellent people. They, a lot of them are PhD wildlife biologists that have extreme on the ground experience in managing wildlife populations and they all hit so frequently on the need for sustainably managed hunting opportunities not only as as permissible in a healthy ecosystem but as necessary in a healthy ecosystem and that's been a really big thing for me in terms of like convincing myself of not just you know I want to do it it's the adventure and the connection to nature but you're you're participating in something that's necessary as well. But it's funny because it was like the second I jumped into hunting, it was like all of a sudden I entered this different culture in a lot of ways of, you know, the people I would talk to in the U.S. You're talking to this cultural contingent that is so removed from the Boulder, Colorado cultural contingent that I grew up in. Both of these groups uh, recreate in the same exact areas, but it's almost like a part of American partisan identity is wrapped up in the outdoor recreation that you do, which is odd to me because, you know, you have like meat eaters on both sides of the coin. For Kel, bridging that divide has strengthened his desire to keep hunting. The, the ability to generate in immense amounts of your own food and some of like the best food you'll ever I would say the best food that you'll ever put in your mouth it, it, that part of it is it's just enormously rewarding and it's just an interesting uh, piece of the whole process that so much of our you know mechanized and industrial society has removed people from is realizing that protein and animals particularly on your plate they they didn't just get that way in an instant and there's a whole process that goes into it and if I'm going to eat meat you know I would rather be a part of that process in as many places as I can. Thanks Kel for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends and from you our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Jacob Bain and Nice Koto, Pandalum, Tryouts, Feverkin, Big Fight, Whist, Jupiter, Memory Palace, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists, track club, or free music archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Andrew Burton with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.